0: Larry asked me to say something that would open the doors to serious conversations about the future of online learning. But after being here for two days, I think those doors are wide open. And uh, preparing for this talk has actually been a really big challenge for me. I thought, oh, yeah, Larry, no problem, I'll do it. 18 minutes. But uh, pretty much every 15 minutes, I rewrote what I was going to say in my head as I've been sitting among the tables with you because so many new ideas came up. I'm like, oh yeah, that relates too. Um, So finally, thank goodness I had to hand in my slides this morning at 9 because I would have still been working on it. Um, And uh, and so this is something, I, I look at it a little bit like speed dating. Um, because I, my museums, although I have a few wonderful colleagues in the audience, we're definitely in the minority, but we, wa- we want to be more active in your thinking, your NMC thinking, your academic thinking, your library thinking about the future of online learning. So here's my pitch. So um, we've been throwing these words around for 24 hours, inquiry-based, collaborative, student-driven, goal-oriented. These are all things we think are going to be happening more and more in learning. And it probably isn't going to be news to you for me to say that these are things that have been happening in museums for a long time. And when we think about inquiry-based and collaborative, sometimes the model of uh, simulation was talked about today or game design, um, things that are very highly structured. And I think that's true. We'll never forget how thirsty my fifth year fifth grader was that needed to know Middle Eastern geography because she had to feed her camel in the simulation of the silk trade route. Um, and that we really together, we learned a lot about Middle Eastern geography and yeah, where would you feed a camel uh, on the way to Istanbul? But uh, you know, and I think there's been a lot of conversation even among us in this time about um, going to the extreme of game design and um, having really, uh, constrictions about goal orientation and steps to follow so that you reach that goal. And we all know we've been there. In fact, I don't know how many of you know this, but there's this fact that keeps, um, not fact, but story that keeps um, buzzing around my head that the highest predictor for success in, as a surgeon in medical school, does anyone know what it is? How, how much, how long they've spent as an adolescent playing video games. I find that fascinating. Not just because of, I mean, I think the obvious hand, eye skill, j- eye joystick coordination, but the fact that surgery in and it itself is kind of like the ultimate goal-oriented activity. Um, I want you to consider though, and, and maybe in, in some very base level, museums are great visualizers of the kinds of qualities that we're looking for in learning environments. So this, for example, is a space that we kind of whipped up um, in conjunction with an exhibition we were having in which uh, people came, uh, nobody knew each other pretty much, but they came around a need, a need to know how to make a print in uh, using digital technology. So in the back corner um, over here we had printers and scanners and monitors and Photoshop and all this stuff laid out and we had facilitators who knew how to use the equipment, and back here we had a library of books that had special kinds of images in them that were good for scanning and copying and whatever, and people would just come and make art. There was no single goal. It wasn't a structured uh, like a video game. It wasn't, even a vis- it wasn't even a simulation, but everyone had their own objective, which was to be more knowledgeable about how you make a print in the 21st century. Um, It's also affected the way we teach. Um, Some of these words have come up um, in our discussions. You got to be flexible when you teach in the 21st century. You don't know if you're going to be teaching online or on site. You may be teaching to people in India or around the corner. Um, you might have to be differentiated in the way that you teach. You might have to teach someone with a different multiple with different intelligence. In a, you might have to sing to them, or as opposed, you might have to make the other person do things with their hands in order to get the point across. Um, Multimodal uh, teaching is something that museums do uh, internally very well all the time, that's that's one of our hallmarks of of how we teach. Um, And most importantly, we need to be empathetic about where people are coming from. They may not be speaking a language that we speak, we might have to find other ways of communicating with them, empathetic about where they're coming from in life. what they want to get out of a museum experience. This classroom uh, I came upon in Helsinki, Finland. Marty was telling me a little bit more about it. Um, It was built by competition for students, architecture students, to design the new classroom, a 21st century classroom. And it's an open-air classroom. It connected to museums. Um, And the people who populated this, it was an active program all summer long, they came and different students from around the world were invited to speak about their ideas for sustainable urban development. And anyone could come and sit down and hear the students, you can imagine the mixture of languages they were dealing with, people were volunteering to translate who just happened to be in the audience when there were conflicts of understanding and Um, It was a really interesting thing to be part of, and I think in some ways it might serve as a kind of visualization of academia and museums working together. So, something about 21st century technology that we know we don't, want, we don't want to carry from the 20th century, and some of you talked about this today, is that, yes, the history of education and technology has not been a perfect match for a lot of different reasons. When I moved to Texas, the K-12 teachers were furious over a centralized learning system in the late 80s, early 90s. Somebody tell me what it was. It started with a T. Um, which K-12 through 12 teachers were being forced to shovel their content into these black and white CRT monitor delivery systems, which, you know, probably some of the tech companies in Texas had something to do with. But I think that the outcome, the positive outcome, because I'm an optimist, the positive outcome of that is that I believe Texas was the first state that every K-12 through 12 teacher had an email address before some states even knew what email was. You know, that, there's some value in that, right? But talking about the spaces that we want for the 21st century, technology's got to be easy. It has to be adaptive. It has to be transparent. It has to be supportive. And it's got to be done in a way that allows for creativity to flourish, right? So when we think about um, uh, combining this technology on-site and online, we want to think about vehicles that will make that connectivity seamless. So that, if you're learning in a classroom, you can go home and continue that learning in some way. And um, museums are also thinking about these transitions that, um, when we're right now at MoMA, as I think absolutely every museum in this country is rethinking their audio guide, if they have one, an audio guide program, um, what can we do now with a smartphone technology that will extend the experience from the museum to home? So um, I'm I'm hitting you hard with the case, but I just want to stop and and reflect a second on your own experiences with museums, your own visits, your local museum. I come from a well-known museum, but there are many museums there that have different visualizations of what a new technological um, learning situation could be. And this one happens to come from very, very new, hot off the press, Art Institute of Chicago installation of Launchpad, which is Uh, very large, probably the largest installation of iPads in galleries in any one institution, brought to you by Scott Sayer, who's sitting here. Um, And uh, what this allows you to do is explore that object in a way that we've all wanted to do for years. We've wanted to open up those chores, we've wanted to look behind it, we've wanted to know what happens when we touch the thing on the top. And you know, here we have that ability to do that right in front of the the box, you know, without the um, very much encumbrance, in fact, almost no encumbrance of technology at all, which was always the stop, right? When we would, we the education technology people would go, we have this great thing to do in the galleries, and the curators would say, not in front of my art object. Well those days are over. They're over because technology is finally in a place where it's flexible, easy enough to use, and cheap enough that we can make it happen um, seamlessly. So I know some of you are fact mavens, so I just want to make sure that I'm teaching to all the intelligences. Um, so, And I have um, another challenge. I have Marcia Semmel in the audience, who probably has better data on this than I do, um, from the IMLS. This data comes from the American uh, Alliance of Museums. So we have 17,000 museums in, just in the US. Um, That's huge, talk about big data, Um, and they welcome 850 million visitors every year, also a huge number. But this was the number that really knocked my socks off, Um, museums invest more than $2 billion a year in education. And what that means is that they've got 90 million visits um, each year from students and school groups, and that they provide 18 million instructional hours for teachers and professional development. Does that sound like an academic institution to you? Pretty close, right? I mean, we spend a lot of time thinking and doing education. Um, So uh, I want to just... Focus now on three things that museums do really well that I think would complement things that universities do well, and then I'm going to follow that with three things that museums don't do so well that really need your help. So that's my that's my um, speed dating uh, approach now. Um, so of course, what is the hallmark of museums? We have a lot of stuff. We have millions and millions and millions of objects, not even all of them are, uh, have a presence online, certainly not, but even the millions that do have a presence online are um, you know, vast and differentiated and hard to find, we'll get into that a little bit later, um, but we have huge, big data sets of information about what is inside the museums. And museums are now, as I think was said earlier, um, much more comfortable with putting out this information, we're keen to get it out there, um, and the data exists in various formats, much of which is mineable and um, you know, follows standards to a certain extent, not always. Um, Google Art Project, which you might have heard about um, recently, over the past two years, Google has had this initiative to connect art museums across the world. Um, in a way that would allow you to explore the collections and put together, for example, all the Van Goghs and all the museum to be able to see them all together even though physically they weren't all able to be together. Fantastic goal. Um, They're up to 17,000 records. Okay. (laughs) 17,000 records is like, you know, this big on the data field of possibilities for museum collection um, consolidation. And I think, you know, uh, museums are working hard and figuring out how they can really make that happen on a larger scale in a more meaningful way. More about that soon. I want to also just follow on that quickly by saying the experts in museums are also very eager to put their objects into action. They want their objects to have a life in the intellectual soup that we all live in. Um, this is one of my favorite examples of how to do that from a museum point of view. If you haven't seen this site, um, please do go visit it. It's um, a cooperation between the British Museum and the BBC and it's a famous book. I'm sure you've all heard of it, or maybe you haven't, but 100 object, The History of the World in 100 Objects. But my favorite part is the um, online, which I'm sorry I can't show it to you, but check it out. Um, it's an actually, it's a, um, interactive interface so as you move your cursor towards the middle of this swirling spiral of little thumbnails the time comes at you and you travel through the vortex of the circle as you go forward in time and then you click on the little objects and each object will connect you with networks of information that um, that both the BBC and the British Museum have sort of developed together and um, I just I just think it's a great visualization of um, the potential of what we could do if we could big data, if we could take that collection, um, a whole cloth of every museum and sort of map it on to the world of big data. Now I think that's a, what Larry was asking for, that's a moon shoot, right? That's a shoot for the moon, that's, you know, but I think it's worth trying and um, we'll see. We'll see, I think we may be able to solve that problem. The other thing that um, we as educators in museums think a lot about is the audience that comes to our museum. Um, We have one of the highest um, attendance rates of any art museum, Uh, it's three million or so a year. I um, am always amazed at the kinds of statistics that we generate from the museum, Um, we know that Almost half of our visitors come from outside the country, and and probably good 75% of those are, don't have in native English speaking abilities. And so, when you when you think about the challenge of that, um, compared to say a challenge of a MOOC, right, where they say they have millions of students all over the world, which they do. I mean, I don't know how many come back regularly. Not so many at the end, I guess, but. Um, We have that problem every day. We're we're educating people in our physical spaces who may not be able to take away everything that we have, and we're we're thinking all the time about programming and um, exhibitions and things we can do to amplify our message without using language. Here was something I thought was particularly effective. It's happening right now at our museum. These are uh, two dancers, Ico and Como, and this is another one here. They are performing inside of a trailer that's parked in the lobby of the museum. Um, the trailer is fitted out with organic material. Um, looks kind of like the day after a nuclear event. Um, and these doors have uh, been covered in a kind of plaster, a white plaster, and their bodies are also covered in a white plaster. And this was in conjunction with an exhibition about art um, coming out of Japan right after World War II. So, seeing these dancers moving in this very um, slow, um, uh, contemplative way in a backdrop of things that look like it was after an explosion or something, uh, immediately conveyed to you one of the major Themes of the exhibition, which is what kind of art do you make when your country has suffered through something like Hiroshima. And these dancers don't talk, they don't sing, there's no music, it's just motion um, and it's stage. And, you know, you have to think about how interesting that is for a museum to bring that in as a kind of amplification of what um, of, of, of what you can do to bring an exhibition into um, a more educational environment. So they're learning about uh, the, the emotional qualities of what it must have been like to live after an attack like Hiroshima, simply by, well not simply, but in, in experiencing a, d- a dance performance like this. So this is um, one of the ways that we reach out online. We have a lot of different things that we do online at MoMA. Every, I'm going to talk a lot about MoMA, but I want to emphasize that neither did I think of all these things, um, and but Wendy Woon, who's in this audience, did inspire most of them and found funding for all of them. Um, and nor does MoMA is MoMA the only place that does these kinds of things. So I want you to. Th- to imagine that even your museum locally can do these kinds of things such as reinterpreting the collection for teachers in thematic ways that agree with K-12 principles, such as streaming live events. All of our auditorium are now wired for um, uh, web streaming. And this was an event that we had with Howard Gardner and Andrew Gardner, his son, who were talking about exactly what we're talking about, and uh, talking about Google Analytics. We have big data here that tells us that by mashing up the live streaming with social media, we were really effective in keeping the message going. So it wasn't just the peak of the moment, but it was also the repeat and the retweeting that kept kept people coming back to the link. So we know this is a visualization. We know it works. Here's the Tumblr page I was talking about yesterday as a way of um, visualizing everything that happens in our museum as a program. Here's what happens in our Facebook after students complete a course, they form groups, they talk to each other, they go to exhibits together, they visit MoMA together. Um, These are all visualizations of the kind of informal learning that um, we have been talking about. So here are three challenges I put out to you. Museums need this, every museum needs this. Reach out to your local museum and help them figure out how to turn their databases into knowledge structures that would work with your academic goals. This is just one example, it's a page from our um, MoMA Multimedia Archive. We have thousands and thousands of hours of events and artists speaking and interviews and it's not great metadata, but it's really fantastic primary source material. It would be great to find a way of using that and supporting what you're doing in your universities. Um, The thing about technology in the galleries is that it looks great when you install it, but the next day and the next year and the three years after that, it's looking a little bit like a technology graveyard. Um, This is at the Hermitage Museum done a few years ago by IBM. We love our corporate sponsors. I couldn't do anything in online courses without my support from Volkswagen my private foundation, uh, my salary is funded by a foundation. We really need these long-term partnerships, but um, we need to think differently and we need to really be um, uh, forward-thinking about the partnership not just being about an installation, but about, about a participation that happens over a long period of time. And um, ending with this slide, this is a model of the Biomuseo, which is at the very point that connects North and South America in the, uh, I don't know, is it the Pacific or the Atlantic Ocean? I'm not sure. Um, and uh, what Frank Gehry designed here is an open-air museum, has no collection, has no collection. The topic of this museum is sustainability and biodiversity, and they have, um, and joined with the many research institutions that are focused in that area of Panama and Costa Rica. You know that this is one of the most biodiverse areas in the world. And they look at this as an amplification of the work that's going on there. So what you do when you walk through the Bio Museo is really, you walk through experiences of explanations, visualizations of science and biology and sustainability. The whole building is sustainable. Those Um, crazily colored, and interlocking shapes actually lead water down into catchment basements, so they they have a water recycling system built into the museum. Um, So this is a new vision for museums, but also one of the first examples of a museum I've seen which is really designed for the world. They are going to be transmitting and receiving signals with and from the world, and not so much about stuff inside. It's about thinking inside. So did that spark anyone's creativity about working with museums? Raise your hand if you think differently about museums being part of the future of online learning or yay. Okay, did my job, Larry.